What's up, y'all? You've tuned in to Pop Politics with me, your host, Dr. Monique Alicia Gamble. I'm an assistant professor, a screenwriter, and a photographer. And this show is a fusion of two things that I love to talk about, pop culture and politics. So let's get to it. So, welcome, welcome to episode eight of Pop Politics. Um, I like to think of it being Libra season that really brings us here today to talk about this fusion of LGBTQ History Month and um, HBCUs. I have with me today some of the University of the District of Columbia's finest uh, alumni and current students to discuss this, this topic. Um, the reason I said it was Libra season that brought us together is because I'm thinking about last week, um, September 24th, marking the 34th anniversary of the, the yeah, 34th, 34th anniversary of um, the premiere of the iconic groundbreaking television series, A Different World. A Different World is the, the show that chronicles black life at the fictional um, HBCU Hillman College. Um, also, because October is coming at the end of this week and October is um, LGBTQ History Month. So this is how we got here. That's what brings us all together, right? Um, my guests are back. I've done uh, the last few episodes solo, but I have guests back today. And as I mentioned, um, they are members of UDC's student body and in some cases, alumni of uh, UDC's student body. Um, I wanna mention here too that UDC is the only public HBCU in the district. And I'd like to think that, not that I like to think, I know that it serves a, uh, a special meaning and it holds a special place um, in the city. Uh, it, it's a, it has a unique and very sort of specific kind of um, space in Washington, DC. And so I'm super proud to have y'all here with me. Um, in terms of structure, what I'm about to do is introduce all of my guests by ways of their bios, and then I'll sit, leave a little bit of space for them to say more about themselves and what they know, what, what they want y'all to know about what they do and who they are, and then um, we'll move into the questions. That sound good, everybody? Beautiful. Okay. First up. Y'all have some very um, impressive resumes. I had to cut down a little bit, which is why I'm giving you room to speak about yourself. Uh, you can do it better than anything you ever write. So Shabri West is first. Shabri is a Black lesbian currently attending the University of the District of Columbia, pursuing her bachelor's degree in early childhood education. She currently serves as president of the Alliance Group, uh, or TAG, and is committed to finding resources for LGBTQ plus youth to help them navigate high school and college. Shabri, it's all yours. Hey y'all, so it's Shabri, I use she, her pronouns. As you can tell, yes, I am the president of the Alliance Group TAG. I'm an LGBTQ organization on campus. I'm also um, a student assistant for the Center for Diversity and Inclusion and Multicultural Affairs. Um, I'm a social ambassador, uh, ambassador uh, fellowship. Um, and my project, I actually just created a project and it's the LGBTQ advisory board that consults with the administration. Um, and it's basically an accountability measure for the administration. Um, I just started this project. I'm very excited about it. Um, 
I'm unapologetically black. I'm an educator. I'm a feminist. I'm an activist. I'm an organizer. Um, my people are my family, my friends, my sisters, my brothers, my aunts, my uncles, um, my friends, if I didn't say that again, um, the LGBTQ community, the Alliance Group tag, you all here with me. Um, those are some of who my people are. I love it. Thank you, Shabri. Welcome. Uh, next up, let's go to Taylor. Taylor is a Black non-binary non lesbian and a 2020 alumnus of the University of the District of Columbia. At UDC, they served as the rechartering president for the Alliance Group, TAG, that I mentioned earlier, um, and a student assistant at the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Multicultural Affairs. Taylor currently works at the DC affiliate of Planned Parenthood as a community organizer fighting for reproductive health and rights and is a graduate student at George Mason, George Mason University, concentrating on women and gender studies. Welcome, Taylor. Thank you. Hey, y'all. It's nice to be here. Um, like um, Dr. Gamble said, my name's Taylor. Um, my pronouns are they, them. I'm a Black non-binary lesbian. I'm a student like Shabri. I'm a teacher like Shabri, <laughs> community organizer, Black feminist. Um, I am my ancestor's baby. Um, I'm a friend, I'm a lover, I'm a creator, a manifester, and a fighter for the liberation of all Black people. Um, and I think that my people, uh, who are my people? My people definitely hold all of the identities that I named for myself. But something that I've been thinking about more specifically recently, um, I've identified that my people are also those who are actively fighting for their personal healing um, to break cycles of trauma and their familial lineages, um, because those folks uh, are who I feel safe, um, seen, and most understood by. Beautiful. Thank you, Taylor. <laughs> and rounding us out is Trinice McNally. Uh, Trinice is a Black queer feminist migrant and survivor who is nationally recognized, who is a nationally recognized transformative leader student affairs professional, organizer, and creative committed to liberating oppressed people. She currently serves as the founding director of the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Multicultural Affairs at the University of the District of Columbia. In addition, she is the founding organizer of the Envisioning Safety on Our Campuses DMV project and the founding director, CEO of TJM Forward Culture, Education, and Organizing Group, which is an educational consulting agency committed to developing art, program and organizing initiatives that mobilize societal change and transformation. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in great company, clearly. Um, welcome, Trinise. Peace, y'all. Uh, Trinise, she, her pronouns. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I am an HBCU alumni of the only HBCU founded by a Black woman my soror, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. So I always like to big her up in anything I do around HBCUs. Um, I'm a priest in the Yoruba tradition. I'm a daughter of Obatala, daughter of Oshun, um, a healer, a creative, so many things. I think, but most of all, I'm willing. And I believe that transformation is possible in this lifetime if we are willing together. Beautiful. Thank you all so much. I appreciate you being here. Um, so yeah, let's let's jump on into some what I hope will be a, a fantastic conversation. Um, we'll start with uh, talking a little bit about LGBTQ History Month, and then we'll move into some pop culture talk, um, specifically about um, a different world and what it's like to be queer um, on an HBCU campus. We'll get into that a little bit. All right, so first up, um, none of these questions are necessarily targeted toward anyone. So those of you who feel comfortable, uh, jump in and we'll talk it until it's done. Um, 
give me some sense of, of LGBTQ history month. Talk about why um, it's important. How do we get here? I think for me, LGBTQ History Month is really important because June has become oversaturated and super corporatized and super, it's just now everyone has pride all of a sudden, right? Now everyone is an ally. And while I do think that pride is historic and important, right? This is the 50, what is it, 52 years since Stonewall? I think that LGBTQ History Month, which was founded in the 90s by actually a high school teacher, um, is actually very relevant and especially relevant to this conversation and what my call to action is for HBCUs. LGBTQ History Month is, you know, what it is. Finding out the history and learning the achievements, right? Learning the stories of LGBTQIA+, non-binary and et cetera people. And I think for far too long, LGBTQ people have been invisibilized and they're often erased because we don't always fit into the binaries that exist. We don't always fit into the status quo. And even though institutions, oftentimes HBCUs like to pick parts of our identities, right? And highlight this part of our work, but not this part of who we are, um, to me, LGBTQ History Month is a reclamation of our power. Come on, reclamation of our power. I love it. Um, <laughs> the other thing I like about this too, and I'll, I'll throw it back at y'all, uh, but so often we think about uh, queer history, and I, I say this in almost every, every time I get a chance to talk about it, um, queer LGBTQ history is so often white and male. Um, and so I, I appreciate any opportunity to add some color in any normal any number of ways um, in talking about LGBTQ history. So I appreciate um, y'all draw, drawing that link and especially making a home and a place for it on campuses that are largely uh, black and brown and don't like to deal with all of those intersecting pieces of our identity. So I think it's dope that we're even having this conversation. Yes. Um, anybody else on um, LGBTQ history? You wanna go back to something we don't know or talk more about um, these origins on um, the origins of the LGBTQ history month. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, then talk a little bit about, let's bring it specifically to HBCUs. Talk about um, or share some impactful or significant icon I can share. Um, so I think when I think of an impactful um, or a significant person, um, I think about Bayard Rustin. He attended Wilberforce University. And I also, well, I attended Central State University. And most folks don't know that Central State University and Wilberforce was actually a school together. But then uh, Wilberforce University uh, became private. Um, when I think about Bayard Rustin, you really can't talk about Martin Luther King without including Bayard Rustin. And most folks know that he was an openly gay man. And he was... Um, yeah, before gay liberation, he was out about his sexuality and, you know, he, it was a lot of homophobia back then. So I just feel like a lot of people don't know that Bayard Rustin, who he is and like what he brought to like the society and like who he was. And he was basically, yeah, he was a gay open man and he contributed a lot to what we have now. Mm -hmm. So that's who I think of. I really love that you brought up Bayard Rustin. Um, especially in the context of HBCUs, right? Like we think about openly black gay men and fraternities and sororities and what that experience is. For those of us that are Greek and queer, um, Byron Rustin was an Omega like in the third. 
you know? So I couldn't even imagine, right? Like what was his experience? We could assume that it could have been negative or suppose it was actually positive, mm-hmm. right? And because of the ways that homophobia and transphobia like literally takes over people's bodies like a possession, uh, he didn't have like that open support, you know? So I really love that you brought him up because most people don't know, not just about the March on Washington, but he was criminalized and thrown in jail for being gay so many times. So many other civil rights leaders didn't even want to hang out with him because he was gay. It's just absurd. Uh, People that come to mind for me, there's like a litany, Zora Hurston, who went to Howard University. Um, I think black people's gift when it comes to culture, anthropology, and ethnography. And when it comes to hoodoo, all things culture and spiritual, she's like initiated into several traditions. Um, And she had a shitty experience at Howard University. And she talks about that a lot in her writing, what it meant to be poor and working class and trying to survive this very debutante, cotillion-like type of introduction into Blackness and the elite. Um, I think of Lucy Digslow, who actually is a founder of Alpha Kappa Alpha, Um, Sorority Incorporated. Um, More importantly to me, she is the first Black woman to be a dean in higher education. She was a Black lesbian Mm -hmm. and Howard University killed her because they spent most of their time, Mordecai Johnson, the first Black president at Howard University. You know, I'm going to spill it. (laughs) I see. I'm going to tell the truth (laughs) about what happened. Um, there's, there's a part of me that's that's like slightly pinched, um, given that Howard is 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 my alma mater. But you know, truth telling. The truth, you know, we got to tell the truth. The Drag Bethune Cookman and how homophobic they are. Mm-hmm. I I will tag you in. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's jump in it. Um, she had a terrible experience, y'all. When she wanted to live with her partner off campus, because you know that's what grown people do. They live with they boo. Um, they tried to force her to live on campus. They tried to reduce her role as a dean and she got terribly sick and ill and they weren't really supportive. And in some of some unpublished work, actually facilitating campus climates with Dr. Beverly Gashevtal led a lot of research at Spelman. There is some unpublished papers that we were able to access with her wife talking about like people like Mary McLeod Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt coming to her rescue at Howard, like standing in for her because of the home, the amount of homophobia and really sexism that was happening at the institution. So I think of her and I, I don't think that Howard actually gives her enough like respect or acknowledgement. I mean, there was a slow haul from what I recall, but it doesn't even exist. You know, how could the first black woman in higher education, I just had an HBCU like to be a dean, not receive the respect and like the dignity even in her death. Um, and I think that's why we're making LGBTQ history month black <laughs> on yeah. this call. Um, yeah, because it is. Gonna do it. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah. Beautiful. Any other icons? Taylor, Shabri. No, y'all did a great job of highlighting those. <laughs> I'm thinking about um, Polly Murray. Um, just another like, Howard alone. First woman in law school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with with the the very significant experience of. Um, you know, sexism yes. at Howard Law School. Uh, and I also think it's interesting um, how in more recent conversations, there's been talk about um, Polly Murray's like gender identity later. Yeah, so it's in so many um, 
conversations that we have about the roots of um, the linkages between blackness and queerness or the roots of queerness that exist within um, our blackness, there's so much of it that's erased, you know, beyond pop culture, but, but just um, living, breathing, being present, having been here. Um, and I, I, I think it's interesting that um, as we talk about one of these sort of bedrocks of Black and queer history, we're talking about their gender identity too. So you can't sort of distance, we can't distance ourselves from these um, ongoing kind of fluid discussions about gender and sexuality. It's all a part of our story. I love that part. And that's been so interesting because I've been learning that too, mm -hmm. that some people are still saying woman, but apparently there's some people in the family that would like mm -hmm. to stick to woman as the identity. So I'm trying to also push myself to say they and them as well, because yeah. Polly can't speak. Right. Polly, Polly not right. here no more. Right. Um, and I think that goes to show you what life could have been like if we were ahead of the curve. You know, mm -hmm. or if we just had access to language to be able to describe our identities. That's when people are like, well, don't label me. I'm like, it's actually power. It's not really the label. It's power in understanding the identity and Absolutely. like standing in that. Absolutely. So, thank and you for bringing up Polly Murray. Sure thing. Sure thing. N names are, are powerful. Labeling a thing, there's power in that. Um, and, and to the point that you made earlier about reclaiming power in saying whatever your name is or saying however you want to be named. I think that there's... Um, it's okay to grasp the power in that. So I appreciate that. Let me bring in a different question here. So let's talk about something then um, that I, I suppose all of you can um, speak to. Um, your interest or your work in LGBTQ organizing or LGBTQ activism on um, HBCU campuses and specifically on UDC's campus. What can you tell me? I can hop in. Um, so <laughs> I feel like first and foremost, I always give credit to Trinise for introducing me to the world of campus organizing and um, Black feminisms, honestly, because I learned so much during my time working at the Center for Diversity, Inclusion, Multicultural Affairs. Um, but something that I think has kept me in the work um, is learning the ways that system of oppression operate um, and then how systems like patriarchy, anti-Black racism, um, sexism, transphobia, fat phobia, um, et cetera, how they all um, impact the lives of those who hold intersecting identities. Um, and so like those who have, and those who hold these identities um, that are marginalized through the intersections of things like race, gender and class, um, ability status, immigration status, et cetera. Uh, we have to navigate the world in like a very specific and particular way. Um, and organizing for the eradication of these systems um, for myself and for folks who are like me is something that I am committed to as a lifelong goal, so. Awesome, thank you so much for that. I couldn't help but as, you're, as you guys are talking about institutions, I can't help but think, I love that, that this uh, conversation has brought these two things together. Um, when I was writing out the notes for this episode, I kept thinking about how, you know, HBCUs are, are we, we've so often thought of HBCUs as a place of like safety and inclusion for Black people. But when you have other identities associated with Blackness, it's not always that space. And so I, I appreciate greatly um, the point that you just brought up there, Taylor. It's, it's good to kind of make that connection. Yeah. Um, for me, I kind of started this work and organizing Actually, when I met Taylor, um, so it's kind of like a little domino effect a little bit. Um, so I met Taylor and through Taylor, I was introduced to TAG. 
and just learning about TAG and the issues that the LGBTQ community faced um, at UDC. I know when I came to UDC, um, it wasn't really a space where, you know, I felt like it was a lot of, you know, LGBTQ folks, folks so I didn't have that community. So when I joined TAG, I saw people like me, you know what I'm saying? Um, I had conversations with people and also like I learned that I wanted to see my people free. And what that means is like them being able to be safe, walking down the street, um, not being judged based on, you know, their sexual orientation or their uh, gender identity. And when I say free, that means like, you know, having access to everything they need, food, clothes, shelter, um, without prisons and police. For me, that's what I look like, safety. That's what safety looks like to me. Um, so just being able to like do this work and saying that, um, you know, like, LGBTQ folks, they matter, we matter. And that's kind of like what started me in this work, just showing showing that. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. pride. I just got to say, I'm like beaming with pride over here. I'm like, and talk your shit, y'all. Talk your shit. Sorry. I just, it's just, it's, I know you know that feeling. Mm -hmm. Like, I know you when you like see your former students who like now are your comrades, mm -hmm. you know, like talk their shit. Like, I mean, geez, I could cry over here. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reason why we do any of this is, is to for y'all to graduate to that place. Absolutely. To see it in real time is just like, look at these niggas. I'm over here like, look, look just, it's just so You're beautiful. a bomb ass teacher though. You a bomb ass <laughs> teacher, organized. I had bomb ass yes. teachers. That's what it is. Lisa's <laughs> bio is like, you know, several <laughs> inches tall. So there's a, there's a lot that's been done in that that's valuable. No, no, no. I just wanted to say that because like that, like that is even why we're here talking about LGBTQ history. So much has been erased, y'all. You know how many people probably have, have done so much good work and we don't know their names because right. we haven't archived it. It's been erased. It's been, you know, like, so this, this is about like flowers now. Like, just thank you again for hosting this space because we don't get a chance to be in conversation with stuff about culture related to HBCUs because of all the anti-Blackness and then what comes with that. So, mm -hmm. sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. I just wanted to say, yeah, this is LGBTQ history to me. Yeah. You yeah. know, being able to, to do this. Um, I love this question, like this, what brings you to the work? How did you get started? Because I think it takes you down like memory lane. Um, and I think that there are new moments in my life that have politicized me over and over and over again. Um, the, I think the first thing would be like personal experience, right? As a black queer migrant that had been navigating sexual identity since I was a kid. I was always a curious kid. I always wanted to talk to the, the masculine girl that everybody was afraid of. It's like, oh, she's cute. I'm trying to hang out with her. Like that was always, that was always me. Let's have a sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, right, like, all of that, but also like dated men as well, right? And then understood like non-binary people exist and trans people exist and was like, oh, and I'm trying to get with you too. And it was just like, okay, so we actually deserve and are able to be attracted to people of all kinds of gender, mm -hmm. right? That wasn't a thing that I thought was okay until like maybe I turned 19 years old, right? When I was in college. And that's what brought me to this work, like falling in love, with a then oh wow she's now my ex-wife uh it was like the first woman I openly 
like dated and knew learned what love was right she was one of the first people and we didn't have any safe spaces on campus like it was very very wild all of my like peers were like so a lot of people were suicidal a lot of people were going to the counselor to try to like talk about you know issues around sexuality and then they pouring out the oil on them in the counseling office because you know Bethlehem is a private institution we are Christian affiliated um, so I organized to start the first GSA in an HBCU in the state of Florida. And it came because of a petition. I was, they were like, you can't, it's not going to happen. Like you can't do it. And I'm like, oh, we're going to get a hundred signatures. Somehow I got these niggas to canvas and we got the hundred signatures and we started the organization. And that was like, I didn't, I wouldn't even have called myself an organizer. It wasn't until like 2015 in a different relationship at a different point in my life that I understood what I was doing, it's organizing. So I, I think that that is the thing that has brought me to the work, seeing your peers cut up because they don't know if life is worth living or the beautiful moments where there are 20 niggas in an apartment, it's a pack of pork chops, a pack of tilapia, some rice, we got six, four locos in the fridge, just some Kool-Aid, so <laughs> what would we buy? Like, and cause all we had was each other. Mm-hmm. You know, so that is what has brought me to this work. It's always been fighting for what we deserve and also the beauty in our community. You know, like no one can tell me that y'all can outdo black queer folks. There's no way. It's no way you can outdo us in celebration and in love because we we know what it is to really live on those margins. Yeah, man. Oof. Jesus. Um I, I, I can't help thinking about like um as as each of y'all are talking, um how you know. Black feminisms teach us that so much of this work, um, the organizing or the activism comes as a matter of survival. You know, when you're on the outside looking in, it, it's like, oh, that's that's so cool that they got that they got involved. Look how, how well they, um, I, I think about the, um, that photo during, um, I don't know, this might be uh, an arguable or debatable piece, but, Nonetheless, I think about that photo right before the uh, 2020 presidential election, you had all of the uh, Panhellenic women in all of their garb um, marching for Kamala Harris. Regardless of who it is that they are sort of like stepping with that picture that like none of the things matter except for um, coming together for this particular choice. And it just, it makes me think about just how organizing for Black folks, and in particular for Black women and Black queer folks, has been a matter of necessity, a matter of absolute survival, um, not just wanting to sort of wear the cape of, of strong or wear the cape of uh, capable. It's an absolute necessity. I don't know. I, from, a, from a professor's perspective, you know, one of the things that's been most revealing to me, like I, in the classroom, I like to create a space where people do feel safe and they want to talk about topics that they don't always get to talk about in other places. And um, this really started, so I, you know, I went to Tuskegee for undergrad, I went to Howard for grad school. So I've spent a lot of time in HBCUs. I didn't see anything in those spaces like what I saw at UDC. Um, when I started teaching at the, the community college years and years and years ago, I actually started at the uh, main campus before, and then I went to the community college. But the 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 thirst for like visibility um, that came out in some of my classes was fascinating to me. It's like women who are revealing themselves to be bisexual, you know, or um, trans folks, maybe not necessarily coming out explicitly and saying, 
but adding what you know is a personal perspective to a conversation that changes the entire trajectory of the conversation. I'd never had that kind of um, candid conversation and that kind of like honesty and vulnerability around a, a very sensitive topic. And so I, I love that uh, UDC has evolved into a place that is, is making intentionally making safe spaces for uh, members of the LGBTQ community. All HBCUs don't do that. You know, even though you, know, you may prize um, the, the blackness piece of it, but the other parts of it uh, don't sort of rise to the level of, of really uplifting in a major way. And I think UDC has done a pretty good job, at least from my vantage point um, of doing that. What's something that y'all can speak to? Like, I, I know this might be like really small, because again, from, from the vantage point of a professor, I remember when the, um, the bathrooms changed, uh, when we went to gender neutral bathrooms. What else? What else has happened in particular at UDC that you can point to and say, you know, this is a part uh, we think of the, of the active activism at the university? I would love for them to share with folks why and how the bathrooms change. Please do. Yes, because I was going to say, I don't know if you should give UDC that much credit because okay. <laughs> we fight like hell to get the changes that we see visible on campus. We mm -hmm. have fought like hell for them and we got a lot of pushback from mm -hmm. administration. And so I can say um, when I was at UDC, the I guess one of the things that I like am most proud of, um, I left a two-year strategic plan um, for TAG where I kind of laid out some strategies and goals uh, for creating an institution that is inclusive of trans and queer students at UDC, because it's, it's not something that's starting from the top and trickling down. Like we are literally organizing like hell on the ground to try to shift the conditions for folks on campus. Mm. Um, but the plan um, listed ways to organize toward a UDC that provides resources, policy and support for our community. Um, and so the LGBTQ advisory board that my successor Shabri has just started <laughs> is like definitely one of the things that is so amazing and that we have fought like hell for to create. But um, so just knowing that it's in full effect now is like incredible um, and it means everything. So Shabri, maybe if you want to talk more about that, because yeah, I, I'm just so grateful that I was able to leave the strategic plan and that um, Shabri is like continuing on the work of where I kind of like left off. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and um, yeah, just to piggyback off Taylor, that was definitely my goal, um, becoming a president. I, I know oftentimes, like, when people, like, leave and graduate, the left, the work is, like, left undone, and nobody is able to, like, step up to that leadership and continue to work, and I definitely wanted to, you know, hold, hold myself accountable, because I knew it was still work that needed to be done, so that's why, you know, I came into this leadership to become president. And becoming president, we, the Alliance Group, um, we came up with a list of demands. And on some of the demands, we had like uh, cultural competency trainings. Um, and one of the other de demands was to get, a, a rec we recently encouraged the institution to, to get, um, to put pronouns in an email signature. And although it might be a small win, you know, a win is a win. And I'm really proud of it because if we've been asking for these things like, continuously these times and it's just it's just now taking place so i know um getting the audience in the restrooms was definitely a huge moment um especially while taylor was there but um getting the, the gender pronouns on our email signatures that's just one little step but i know like there's so much more work that has to be done and those are just a small amount of things that i'm proud of right now it's continuing the work that taylor has left 
um, creating this LGBTQ advisory board. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about what's some of the pushback that you've, you've gotten? Like, what's the most absurd piece of pushback that you've gotten from uh, an idea you guys have had? I would just say the um, facade maybe of wanting to help and assist and implement things that are inclusive of LGBTQ queer and trans folks, um, but then kind of not falling through. <laughs> I mean, coming through. I'm sorry, they definitely fell through uh, lots of times. I'll just add like when we had, we had an incident that happened at UDC um, where the origin of restrooms was vandalized and it was vandalized twice. And, you know, once we, you know, told the administration about it, wrote them emails, letters, it took them a long time to respond to um, to what had happened. You know, it wasn't like no accountability for, you know, not saying like, oh, the person is going to get expelled for doing this, but just having some type of, you know, accountability measure was though we can actually talk to the person, like nothing was really done, but they just took the sheet off the paper and was like, okay, that's it. So just like little situations like that, that might think it's okay for someone to go and do it again. You know what I'm saying? So um, just like little instances like that, it's just been slow with communication. Like they really, it's like, it's not really their priority right now. Uh, it's a, an ongoing fight and an uphill fight. But y'all are in it. You're in it. <laughs> You're in it. I'm glad they shared, you know, and y'all are talking about your experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, I have told y'all and will always tell y'all, you have a lot more power than I do, right? As students and as alumni, right? To, to say your truth. But I'm really glad, Shabri, that you talked about the vandalism, right? Because that shows the power of organizing. And oftentimes there are moments that politicize us, right? Or like move us to action. And that was a very wild time for us, Dr. Gamble. Like you imagine you come out of your office and one of the only all gender restrooms on campus is vandalized. And then it happens again the next day. Mm -hmm. It was it was a it was a violent act, you know, and some folks didn't understand that, that it, this was a direct attack. This is a direct act of violence. And this was it was just disrespectful. True. And all gender restrooms are just not about gender. They're about safety and accessibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was really proud that the students like y'all, they led that. They led that. I mean, I. I don't think it would have happened if it was just me saying we need to do this, mm -hmm. right? Which is why I'm like the power of student organizing is way more powerful than anything that we can do as faculty and staff. Talk, you know? talk, can you talk specifically about what happened? Because I don't think I knew, I, I, I may have known, um, actually, no, I don't think I knew about the vandalism and I don't know about uh, what happened in response. Can you give a little bit more insight into that? Yeah, that wasn't, so the vandalism tag shared Actually, if you go to the center right now, I'm pretty sure it's gonna be there for what, a decade or whatever someone takes it down. <laughs> but Tag wrote a summary and it's pretty much an analysis of what happened. Hmm. They put pictures on a slip. I think Taylor typed it up. She was the, like at the time when they usually pronouns there and there, you know, they were wild up, you know, because they felt like this was like their first incident that they had encountered on the campus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they reported it. Um, students also started sharing because at that time the police was frequenting the center um, and yes I am an abolitionist 
And I also know where I work, so I have to confine myself to guidelines, but there's absolutely no reason why the police needs to come and hang out in a space for marginalized people if you're not doing anything. There's no reason to come because that makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if we're gonna be committed to students, then we need to make sure that students feel safe first. So that was also happening. Something had happened with Jabri with an officer. They made them feel uncomfortable. Something had happened with another student assistant. So all of this is going on. And then the students like write this letter. They want to share what happened and they didn't get an immediate response. And to them, that felt like a slap in the face. And, you know, I can't speak for other people, you know, and why they did or did not respond. What I do know is that we moved them to respond. And that was a long process. And there's some things I can't even say on, on this podcast if I want to come back to UDC for now. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to be honest. It was very hard. It was very hard having to fight for bat for restrooms. Like, do you, do, is there gender restrooms in your house with your mom and your daddy? No, y'all just use the restroom, don't y'all? Like, it's literally not this big of a deal and it literally is. So I don't know. What I'm proud of is that we now have all gender restrooms on every campus, thanks to the work that TAG led. There's gender bathrooms, all gender bathrooms where at the community college down here in Fort Totten, we got them here at UDC. And you know, we wanted more of them, to be honest, right? We wanted them on the main campus level, A level, so people could see that, mm -hmm. right? Visibility matters. But that was like the first really big win, Dr. Gamble, that they organized. Like where they were like, all right, we had enough of this shit. Like they meet in, in the conference room late night. And I think a lot of people just think that it just happened. It was no, it was a power of organizing. And I hope that, I wish universities one day will start telling complete stories. Sure. Because when you tell incomplete stories, people like Taylor and Shabri get erased, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Mm -hmm. Well, this, that, that is definitely the benefit of, of these kinds of platforms for storytelling. Because, um, yeah, it's a win for organizing and it's also a win for visibility for a marginalized group that, you know, can easily be like swept aside and folks are like actually no, um, this is a problem for us and we're going to make sure it's it's known. So that's a, that's a significant um, progress, I think. And the pronouns. People are still like, well, why must I put my pronoun in, in my email? Mm -hmm. Literally, I'm training people and they're literally like, I don't understand why I need to say that. These are all people that's also saying like, I don't, your name is hard to pronounce. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, I'm surprised you have a job, right? Like rooted in caring about people. This is education. We use pronouns because we want to respect people in their full humanity, period. You mess up, say, I'm sorry, and you keep going. Like, but to habitually misgender somebody, people don't understand that detriment, what that does to that person that's on their journey, exploring their gender, or they're clear about their gender. And we just need to get it right because sure. it's not about us. It's about respecting them and their dignity. And Shabri, over the summer, like I said, Taylor had graduated and moved on, moved on into their job at Planned Parenthood. <laughs> but like they had to continue that work. And they urged President Mason to send that letter out and for him to do that. So, you know, he, he is willing to talk to them. And he has been, you know, like. I think that has been very helpful because some if some if no one listens and cares, then nothing happens. Right. But I don't want people to get it twisted. It's because of student organizing is why any of this has happened. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, correcting the story. We will not get it wrong <laughs> next time. It's out there now. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so let's move into um, Black pop culture a little bit so we can talk about um, 
a different world. Uh, however, you want to use it contextually. Um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I, as a, a kid growing up in like the 80s and 90s, um, and my dad went to Tuskegee University, Tuskegee Institute, uh, and I went to Tuskegee University for undergrad. And so um, HBCU life has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Uh, one of my favorite photos is, is um, of my parents taking me to a, a Tuskegee homecoming. I'm like two. And my dad is like, he, his, his, his hands are open and he's just kind of letting me run. But I, I, that picture is so important to me because it, it makes me think about just how deeply embedded um, the love of blackness is in my family and love of HBCUs is in my family. And so seeing a, uh, seeing a different world has just been massive for me. Uh, but as I get older and as my queer identity starts to form, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, ah, oh, there's something about that, that, that Black uh, experience that was missing. And even, you know, in my understanding of my own HBCU experience, it, did, it looked in a lot of ways like a different world and in a lot of ways not like a different world. Um, so I'm wondering if y'all can speak to, um, I think Shabri mentioned, like when, um, when she first got to um, UDC, not really feeling a strong sense of um, LGBTQ unity there. How did that change over time for you, or if it changed um, over time for you? In what way did it? Yeah, so, um, yeah, like, yeah, coming to UDC, I ain't really had that community, but I actually met Taylor through um, in a student center, um, working with her in a student center. And I actually just, we happened to be in an event together. Well, not even an event. I was working at one of the events and I, I believe Miss uh, McNally was up there like teaching it or doing something. And I was like, wow, like this part where I need to be, like I probably need to learn like more about uh, language and political education, um, why we use pronouns. And then through there, um, just uh, Taylor was already like into the work. And just, just basically, just me and Taylor. It was just me and Taylor, and um, getting involved with Tag has led me to this work, and I couldn't be more grateful to like this is how I got started. And then through through that, I start like educating folks and letting people know about Tag, and they start being interested in the Tag. Start um, talking to my family more. Start talking to my friends more. Like they, some of them, like you know, um, well, what does it mean to be queer? Like what does trans mean? So just having these conversations now, I'm able to have these conversations with my friends and my family, and just like give them some context and just let them know, like you know, we always been here. Um, this this work always pretty much been here. And just cause like, I'm just now getting access to it and getting the language for it. Um, you know, it can definitely still be shared. And I think like people need to know because people still being murdered, people still being, um, yeah, it's just like homophobic is still here in the families. And it's just, sometimes it's just like embedded in them. So, you know, I just want to change. Like, I know for me, like when I had kids and like when I start, you know, doing what I do, like I want to just be able to change that like, um, it's, it's not really just female and male, like just letting them know, like, it's not just that. And I know like, it's a lot of things going on with uh, people not wanting to let like younger kids know about like sex education and um, the culture and queer and all that. But I think it needs to be, young folks need to know about this because at an early age, they, they knowing who they are and people are like, oh, they don't know who they is yet. No, they know exactly who they are. So I want to be able to, that's what, you know, I'm going into education, but I want to be one of those 
you know, teachers be like, yeah, you know who you are. And, you know, just being there for them regardless. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the community at UDC, the queer and trans community at UDC gave you a greater sense of that language and a greater sense of that kind of like responsibility to young people. Yes. Yeah, take it. Okay. What else? Anybody else have a, a uniquely interesting uh, <laughs> a queer experience at a, at a UDC or, or, or at an HBCU? Um, well, being in tag with Shabri, um, I think being in community with, like explicitly being in community with LGBTQ identified folks kind of awakens um, pieces of me that I didn't know existed. Um, and they helped me like, figure out my identity um, and like how I wanted to identify like who I am, what my sexual orientation is, what do I like, what don't I like, what is my gender identity, what are my pronouns? Cause they, they've shifted, my pronouns were she, her, and then they shifted from she, her to she, they, and then they shifted from she, they to they, them um, over the course of a couple of years. And I like definitely wouldn't probably have like I'd been able to navigate or identify that part of myself without tag. Um, and it, I think also just being able to be in spaces where um, I feel seen and am able to show up like fully and like authentically in my truth is like extremely important for my healing. Um, and I definitely like was able to receive that through being in community with TAG and just like all the folks that were in TAG as well. We definitely brought like UDC is a commuter campus also. so. Um, there aren't a lot of spaces for people in general and then like especially for like queer and trans identified people so i think the more tag became visibilized it brought people who hold different intersecting identities like kind of out of the woodwork and we like created a beautiful thing where people just like wanted to come and participate and be in community and learn more about all the things that should be talked about so definitely grateful for TAG and that's kind of how it being involved shaped my experience at an HBCU. Nice. Wow. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I think for me, I don't know. I think it's still, it's, it comes back to the question you asked us about how we got into the work, mm -hmm. you know, and I think about a different world. And like you said, I didn't notice what was missing, right? Mm -hmm. Until I started to under my, understand myself, right? And start to to have the politics that I now have. Um, but at Bethune-Cookman, it was, you know, it was born out of that experience of like learning about love, right? And learning about folks that were being discriminated against and losing their lives and not being supported. We had a student that had died in a hazing incident and there was a minister that said like publicly at a ceremony that this is what happens when you're gay. You know, like that, that was the type of homophobia which, which was so interesting because half the school was gay that we knew of, right? Like I was in the marching band, mm -hmm. had a great time. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was Greek, <laughs> had a great time there too, right? Like it's, blackness is inherently queer. So it was just so interesting. And but at Bethune-Cookman in particular, like student leaders weren't out. Like if you were gay, you couldn't be out. Yeah. Even though I know Ms. BC, you're, you're baby. We at the same club, right? probably with the same person, right? This is college, right? Where everything is just so small. And yeah, I think that's like my introduction to, to queerness and really through ballroom culture mm -hmm. also, because 
most of my friends, my roommate at the time, like, you know, we had like our own similar house situation, but like people started to get, you know, initiated into houses, right? People started to do the underground sororities for like masculine, you know, for men and different folks. And, you know, I also taught at NCCU, I run the LGBTQ center there. And that was a completely different experience, you know, because they were the second HBCU to have a center. So there was like an awareness, right? That we exist, but there still was an interesting resistance with me, like a 25 year old black woman with long blonde hair at the time coming to talk to you about how to do your job better. You know, so I feel like my role has always been accountability. Sure. And I sometimes yeah. wish that I could like have experienced a good experience, but it, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Yeah. And it feels like that's, that's what the work is. I mean, when I got to the National Black Justice Coalition, I ran our HBCU program where I traveled to like 15 different HBCUs doing cultural competency trainings or talking to presidents about how they could do better and administrators. And you could always tell the people that were truly trying to check a box like mm -hmm. Taylor was talking about mm -hmm. or the people that were truly like invested, you know, in those students. Um, so I, I think it, it has come from the last decade of doing the work in a very personal way, but it's also come from like seeing these two, you know, like I always make the best relationships wherever I work, um, either through colleagues, and like through former students who usually become my comrade and join a political formation, <laughs> or, you know, we just develop relationship because oftentimes those are the relationships that have sustained me on these campuses. Um, a lot of our colleagues, you know, can be very homophobic, yeah. can be very transphobic, can be very a lot of phobic that I, I just don't even want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. uh, so to have people that actually get it and want to move the work and really just have dignity, compassion and respect. Um, I think that saves us, you know, that's even why you and I are even in conversation. Like I met you through a student who was like, oh my God, she's talking about black feminism. You're going to love her. And I'm like, I love her already. Where is she at? What's going on? There's someone else on this campus. Like, you know, like it's, yeah. it's like an instant love connection and of just care. Yeah. You know what? The, the next question I had on the list was about um, how do um, HBCUs or I feel like we're talking about HBCUs, but this could be like more broadened to institutions generally, but how do they inflict harm um, on queer and trans students? And the as, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about uh, one of the most significant ways that happens is by like through erasure or through dismissal. Um, I'm thinking about when I was at Tuskegee, like my, like my junior year, we got a bunch of male cheerleaders. And so it's, you know, <laughs> cheerleaders at Tuskegee were not like cheerleaders at like, I don't know, Notre Dame, where you got like the the, the guys who are gonna be like the foundation, you know, of the, the pyramid or whatever. These boys were gay boys. They're there to, to pop, you know, they're there to be their full selves um, as cheerleaders. And it was so uncomfortable. Like the, 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 the students were so uncomfortable at first. Um, when, I want to say this is my junior year, it may have been sophomore year, but when football season first started, when those boys came out and, you know, the student body recognized that, oh, we have male cheerleaders now and, oh, they're those kinds of boy cheerleaders? I don't know about this. But by the time we got to the end of the football season, it was, it was wild. We, we loved them because they were great <laughs> at being cheerleaders. But it, it makes me think about, like, them the, the, the guys themselves having to navigate 
that experience. And then students having no real guidance about navigating that experience. And so in some ways, you know, the dismissal of what's clearly happening, you, you clearly see these boys come onto the field and you see the way that the, the, the audience reacts to them, you know that this isn't positive. And you know, by their own strength, by their own fortitude, they're there and they keep going and they still perform and they do a, a great job, but they also shouldn't have to perform in semi-hostile environments. And I, I think about how um, our institutions just sort of withdraw themselves from engaging, knowing full well that maybe a little bit of support here on behalf of these communities would be helpful and would go a really long way in terms of being, you know, inclusive. So I think about that uh, as that that sort of dismissal or that with withdrawing or that lack of intentionality about being inclusive as one of the ways that um, our institutions and in HBCUs specifically inflict unknowingly maybe inflict harm. Um, are there any other examples that y'all can think of? I know you've, you've mentioned, you guys have mentioned quite a few and I'm uh, maybe asking this question <laughs> again in another way, but I am curious if, if there's anything that comes to mind when you think about it like that, um, knowingly or unknowingly um, inflicting harm on um, queer and trans folks. Yeah, knowingly, there's a litany of violence <laughs> on HBCU campuses when we think about queer folks. One, a recent one that stuck out is the transphobic letter that a student received three years ago at Spelman College. Um, across the way at Morehouse in 2003, there was a batting incident where a young man was beat to death because another young man thought that he was staring at him in the shower. Like, like this has really happened, y'all. I could think of so like there there's a couple there's another incident that happened at Dillard University where there was a, another incident and then you know we have the ones that we don't talk about right and the ones that like we never hear but I really love how they kind of have really laid it out around like what happens when you don't respond yeah right what happens when students have to organize to create what we should be doing which is our job our job is to do the research and understand what student needs are. That's not the, that's not the job of the student. You know, the student is just gaining real hard life skills and organizing, but truly it's not their job to do this. And I think that leaving it up to students, leaving it up to people like us is, is doing the harm because we get burnt out and then we get labeled as the angry professor or the this or the that. And it's like, if, if you would, care you know and you would tell stories that matter to you and that matter to the world without fear you know I think I think we will be in a different place because Shabri will tell you there's been some converse there's been some breakthroughs and we can't share someone's business but Shabri recently had a conversation with someone in a very high position at UDC and they talked about their sibling who died from HIV mm -hmm. we were talking about the scholarship that we're about to um launch that we would love to share with y'all and it was a moment of connection because they shared that they wanted to learn more about the LGBTQ community as it relates to HIV. Mm. And I think that's a, a powerful conversation to have given that, that that was the myth, right? That it was us that brought this grid at the time. So it's like, imagine if you would be more willing or if you just had some humanity, you know? Like really it's about humanity, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that we would be at a different campus. And I mean, there are organizations who have been doing this work and BJC has been doing it. Um, the HRC, um, HBCU Foundation, that is like where I really like 
met other black LGBTQ leaders at HBCUs. It's like one of the only programs that targets black LGBTQ leaders at HBCUs and brings us together for a weekend. And there I made like lifelong friends. Shabri has gone, Taylor has gone, like we send students every year they apply. And it's like, those are the programs that have gotten admitted, some administrators, you know, to move the mantle. But I think, I think y'all have laid it out. I'm curious about what you've seen as a faculty member. <laughs> oh. asking you now. <laughs> um, you know what, the, the, the truth is, there's not a lot of conversation around faculty members. Um, we talk about high level, um, like high level conversations about like intersectionality. And that's if you have someone in the room who is, who is committed to talking about that. But um, in my experience, um, there just, there hasn't been a lot of conversation explicitly related to these topics. Um, so much of the work honestly is happening in, in classrooms, you know, um, and it's happening to, to the point that you y'all have made here, it's happening when you have a professor who is willing to go to that place. If you don't have one that's willing to go that go to that place and the conversation isn't happening. Um, but in the classroom, I will say that when those when these conversations are happening, they are transformative. Um, years ago, I was teaching, um, I don't know what class it was now, but I had an older gentleman in there and this dude is like, He's got to be in maybe his like mid to late 60s. And he had a granddaughter who identified at the time as lesbian. And he didn't get it. He, he started out, you know, telling us, I think this might have been a, like a black politics class or um, no, it was a community college. So it was probably uh, like intro to political science or something like that. But he made a point of being like, you know, I, I, I love my granddaughter. And I think that he and his wife had custody of her. So she's, you know, a youth. Um, she's living with them. She's maybe in like junior high school or, or high school. Um, but, but by the end of that semester, he's like an advocate. Like he's, he's a person who was correcting other homophobic language or other homophobic attitudes that he recognized were sort of popping up in the conversations that um, other students were starting in class. Those kinds of transformations don't happen if no one initiates the conversation and people are what I find is that people are willing and very often they go into um, you know they'll, they'll have what their comfort zone is and they'll make like whatever their stance is um, but then once you once they have a little bit more information they're willing to kind of move on that stance right like once once you have a grandfather who starts talking about his granddaughter now it's not just some some stranger or like some a uh, white kid in a, a, a pride parade that you can sort of paint a certain way. Now you know them or, or you can feel some connection to them. So I, I, I definitely want to do more um, in my role as a faculty. It's, it's a goal of mine to make sure that we are including these conversations or that we are mindful of them in the institutional practices that we're having. We're talking about hiring um, other professors using the term intersectional and having intersectional, you know, talking about these things with an equity lens or with an intersectional lens, they're not negotiable parts of the, the you know, professor search. They should be like uh, critical, integral parts, you know? Um, so I, I hope, I hope that, that more professors are having those kinds of conversations. I also think that in, in the academy itself, there's so much division and tension around um, which fields are important, you know, 
uh, which disciplines are important. And so you got folks who are, you're battling against whether or not STEM and objective science and finance and all those things uh, bear more weight or, or are more productive than social sciences are, not recognizing the value of both. So, I mean, it's, there's still several issues um, that exist within the academy, but I also know that there's some really, really wonderful professors on UDC's campus and some really wonderful people in leadership too that are willing. And I, I tell my students all the time, it's like a very low bar, uh, but sometimes willingness and better than before is progress. You know, it's not, not, it's not the destination, it's not as far as you wanna go, but um, it is progress and it allows you to be able to build off of that going forward. So fair question. Um, I don't have a whole lot of light for you, but there's a little bit. <laughs> no, thank you for, for answering. I think the, the most critical and important thing you said is that that should be like the standard, mm -hmm. right? You, whoever is on a hiring team, I'm not sure if it's like faculty senate or whatever, however it looks like, that should be like a part of your application process for the whole institution. Like the whole, insti the whole institution should be accountable to understanding intersectionality and anti-Blackness and racism and sexism. And that's that's where we're failing, yeah. in my opinion, because mm -hmm. most people seem to think that it's just the job of the center or it's just your job because you teach Black feminist studies. No, it's all y'all job because these are all y'all students. You know, so I think that's that's where the failure comes in that people don't see themselves as a member of the community. They see this as an agency, you know, mm -hmm. because we're a government affiliated institution. I don't really feel the, the collectivity all the time. I work in student development. So our work is a lot different because we work with students. So we, we kind of have to, like we are the co-curricular program and whatever's getting done outside the classroom. But imagine if what you said was the standard at UDC and every other institution. Yeah. Like it would literally change the pace and probably reduce a lot of harm. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, step-by-step. I know as a, as, a political as a political scientist and a political science professor, I know incrementalism is, a, is an ugly word, <laughs> but you know, um, little by little, step by step, there is movement forward. Yeah. Uh, let's see, what else I wanna ask you about? Um, let's talk about pop culture a little bit then, like directly. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned that the, the failures or maybe, maybe not so much the failures, but what's missing, what was missing from like a, um, a show like A Different World. Can y'all talk about um, the, the current um, pop culture landscape? Um, what do you think is today is the role of pop culture in advancing it and expanding the visibility and inclusiveness of LGBTQ folks at um, HBCUs? Is there any show that's doing it well? Is there any like music that's doing it well? Yeah, I think life looks a lot different now than it did when I was an undergrad. <laughs> like, what is this pulse? That's a God dream. Literally, it was a God dream. Literally, I think I was in tears every episode because I, I just couldn't believe that, that this had finally made it to screen, right? You've heard the legends. I've been to balls and all of that, but to see it, on like on television, I think that that really influenced a lot of conversations in people's homes, to your point. You know what I'm saying? Like, so to me, the way that the show got so much like support and high ratings through FX, that helped kind of expand the conversation a bit. 
you know even like i love Lil Nas x i feel like he my little nephew he i feel like you know boosie at this point is stalking his page right like pop <laughs> culture does a thing right where it points out he's like, stalking his life oh my it's <laughs> like boosie Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth, baby. Because every time not Lil Nas posts, you got to post. You got to respond. No one's paying you to do this. So I think pop culture absolutely influences people's like ideas around things. And the more wide access that people have to social media, people can like kind of point out. Because like I, I know some people, not my friends, but who probably thought right? Some interesting things about Boosie. I grew up singing Boosie. He had a song called They Dykin. That's all we had in, our, in the 2000s, right? That's the only little gay song that we had. And like now my relationship to him has drastically changed because you're a, you're a homophobe. And not only are you a homophobe, but you, you're some type of sexual abuser because you let your children that are 12 and 14 have sex with a grown-ass lady. That's weird, dog. That's kind of weird, right? And like you brag and talk about how you didn't want them to be gay, so you brought a grown lady. If when I was 12 and 14, I didn't want to have sex with no grown ass person. You know what I'm saying? Like, so people are not correlating like the things that he has done, the ways that he has treated people and women to like also this little Nas conversation. I think it's like opening up people's eyes. Like Pose has done it. What happens with Lil Nas X? Kaylani just came out the other day as bisexual. And you know, you know what cis men love to do. They like to sexualize anybody that they think is attractive. So now it's okay for Kaylani to be bi and for Tiana Taylor and what is it, Norma Normani? Normani That's how yeah. you say the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My interesting little scene that went down the VMAs, right? That's all enticing. <laughs> and that's all okay because it's acceptable as long as it's for the male gaze. So I think it's absolutely on pop culture. Cause that's what politicizes people, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I recently heard that there's a show on Netflix called Sex Education that mm-hmm. does a really good job of highlighting um, folks' intersectional identities and like, specific experiences. I have not had the opportunity to watch it yet, but everyone that I'm in community with raves about it. They love it. Um, so put that on folks' radar. I think it's doing a good job at portraying LGBTQ folks. Um, and just like people with who are differently abled, um, I think, yeah, people have just said that it does a really good job and that they learn a lot about like gender identity and sexual orientation and a lot of different things through that. So that's something that I've heard that's good. I definitely added that to my queue recently. So uh, thank you for bringing it back. Yeah. Yeah, and um, just to piggyback off like the shows and stuff too, uh, Grownish is actually a good one too. They talk about a lot like uh, about police brutality and not just about like the shows and TV and things like that, but I also want to mention Twitter. A lot of times people use hashtags um, and tweets like, you know, the Black Lives Matter and that sometimes sparks conversation as well. So um, Twitter has definitely has been one of the like ways that people show, show and do things in a movement. But yeah, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to mention, like people using hashtags and Twitter. Um, so yeah, definitely those things. TikTok. Oh, yeah. Literally, I learned so much yeah. on TikTok. It's so just like, education. and it's quick. You know, it's like you got to get to the point because we don't <laughs> have much time. I love it. Yeah, the folks are making moves with TikTok for sure. Um, I want to throw uh, throw one in here. I, every chance I get, I like to talk about it. It's one of my favorite movies. It's Rafiki. Anybody seen it? Back in my, you know, young dyke days. For real? That yeah, it came out in like 2018. 
That's about the South African lesbians. I, I didn't have. Know. I didn't have it because I remember that. But the name rings a bell. Taylor, yeah. I think you had. Didn't we watch that? I don't think I watched it. It came to like ind independent movie theaters mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. I don't think well, I, I think ever I'm, had the opportunity to see it. I think I'm talking about the wrong movie then. That's okay. I'm gonna tell you. I'm a talking about, about the it. movie on Netflix, like the bluest something, and it's a South African like young lesbian. I don't know this one. Oh no. I don't know this, one. but now now I'm intrigued. So I'm gonna have to find that one or follow up with you for to to tell me what it is because <laughs> I'm, I'm like I was definitely a younger person like it wasn't recently at all oh no so no Rafiki is definitely it came out in uh I want to say 2018 and it, it had its real kind of ride somewhere between 2018 and 2019 so it's definitely recent how could I miss this tell us about it What's okay gladly um <laughs> so the film is set in um in Kenya um all the actors are Kenyan um and the director filmmaker is a woman named uh, Wanuri Kahoy, I believe is how her name is spelled. It's uh, last name is K-A-H-I-U, K-A-H-I-U, I believe is how it's spelled. Um, but, and, and she's also Kenyan. She runs a production company called Afro, uh, Afro Bubblegum Pop. Um, and her intention with the work that she is doing is to, to create different um, visions of Africa, essentially. She's like, you know, there have been so many films or so many television shows, so much media portrays Af Africa in a certain way. She's like, I want to um, show the beauty of color, the vibrancy, all of those things. And so you really get a lot of that in watching film. But nonetheless, movies about um, two uh, like high school age girls. They're probably in their, their late teens. Their fathers are political rivals. They're definitely both still in high school. Their fathers are political rivals. Uh, and the two of them, essentially, it's kind of a coming of age story for them. The two of them essentially fall in love. What I love about this story, beyond the fact that it is adorable, and I, I, I just adore this movie, but what I love about it is it became kind of a uh, well-regarded and renowned film. And so there was all this talk about it uh, internationally. And at one point, so all this talk about it internationally, but at the same time in Kenya, because homosexuality is still against the constitution, then the film was ba was banned in Kenya. So here you have like a, a legitimately homegrown film with actors that are Kenyan, with a filmmaker uh, who is Kenyan set in Kenya and Kenya's like, nah, we're not playing. Um, but then by the time you get to 2019, the film is up for an Academy Award. Like it's being considered, um, you know, for like really high awards, like on that level. And so in order to be considered, Kenya decided, all right, we'll, we'll allow it to run for seven days, just one week. Um, turned out, once the film aired, this movie ends up being the second highest uh, grossing film of all time in Kenya. Guess what's the first one? Just to put this in context, what do you think is the, the, the highest grossing film of all time in Kenya? It's one that, that united uh, Pan-Africans <laughs> around the world in like 2018. I want to give you a hint because I, I feel like Please. I want y'all to guess it. Well, I want to say Moonlight. Nope, not close. But you know, Moonlight isn't going to unite straight ah! black folks. Ah! Taylor, a queer. Moonlight. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a very specific perspective there. I'm gonna, I feel like I'm just have to, because there, there there's no hints I can give you that wouldn't give it away, but it's Black Panther. Black Panther. Oh yeah! Okay, okay. So, so think about this, but think about that. 
Like oh, this is Black Panther being a Marvel film, massive, massive, right? And then the next one is this little lesbian film that y'all said y'all didn't want to see. But you watched it. <laughs> but though, you watched it. You paid so your little money and you watched it. Mm -hmm. So like when I when I think about the the value of pop culture, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that um, the law has moved a lot in Kenya. It hasn't moved a lot in Kenya, but people are not silent. And so, you know, one of the things that's happened, like uh, um, Rafiki is kind of in this place where there were a lot of, um, you know, old colonial relics of homophobic laws that were coming into question. And so as these, these governments, these countries' governments enacted more and more um, restrictive homophobic laws, they started to realize just then how much more interest and how much more active your, your queer and trans folks actually are. So where before you could kind of just like paper over and be like, oh, you know, there is nobody, there's nobody who's gonna put up a big fuss. Um, folks started to put up a big fuss. And so, like I was saying before, like even if, if progress is small, in this case, progress looks like just not being silent, just not being quiet you know, about uh, depictions of your identity and depictions of who you are. People wanted to see it. So that's a fascinating little anecdote that I always, um, beyond loving the movie that I always like to share. I'm hella glad you shared that because it makes me think about the Kakuma camp in Kenya right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two black gay men were burned at a refugee camp earlier this year. Wow. Um, and it's been wild because there's like folks from Sudan, Uganda, Somalia, like, you know, even NSARS that we saw in Nigeria also like had very blatant attacks, you know, on queer folks. Mm -hmm. So it feels like there's even this like reclamation of queerness is happening on the continent, but also like violence, yeah. right? Like in really harsh ways. You know, I think about the violence here against trans women. I think we're at number six this year that, that we know of, right? That have been reported. And to think you you have to navigate a refugee camp, right? Because there's persecution, warfare, something's happening in your country, right? You have to flee to another country and then you get burned because mm -hmm. you're gay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm so glad you brought up Rafiki because I remember it being really political and I'm wondering yeah. how did that contribute or not contribute to the climate there given what's happening at the refugee camps? I feel like it, it, it all is a part of it. It's all a part of the story. And I, it goes back to kind of that, that point you made earlier that you've made a couple times. It's about humanity at the end of the day. And it's, it's interesting how once those biases, you know, emerge and, and become so much stronger, you can completely disavow one's humanity. It's a much, I think it's a much larger story to talk about in terms of um, how humanity presents itself in human beings, what, you know, what people, really consider to be uh, a humane thing and how that can, is negotiable depending on the person you're talking about. It's a fascinating piece of human nature to me. Especially blackness, you know, to be black is to be deviant immediately. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are trying to argue about how some organizers or black feminists in particular use blackness and queerness. Like blackness is inherently queer. You know, if you look at the, the terminology, like yeah. we've always been deviant we've always, we've always been otherized we've always been not seen as worthy of humanity you know mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways that is actually what queerness is as well you know so that kind of double-edged sword um or double what is it double jeopardy double minority there's so many different versions since the double bad you know like <laughs> we've evolved but yeah double problem <laughs> okay um 
Okay, y'all. So I'm, I, I've held you for long enough. Okay, I got one more question for you, and then I'll let y'all be and enjoy the rest of your evening. I appreciate you being here as long as you have. Um, last question is really about, I guess, you know, moving forward. Um, and, and I think it encapsulates a lot of the things that, that we've talked about and kind of puts a bow on it. So uh, Dr. Be Beverly Guy Sheftal, your mentor who you need to call, Trinise, uh, is the Anna Julia Cooper Professor of Women's Studies at Spelman College. Um, in 2018, in a digital publication about homophobia and transphobia on uh, HBCU campuses for the nation, she said, it has been difficult to create what I would call a queer friendly campus because we haven't acknowledged as an institution the deep and persistent issues around homophobia that exist in the community. And HBCUs are a microcosm of that. She said, we would have to say out loud and on a regular basis that we have issues around this and address them as an institution. So the final thing I wanna hear from all of y'all who have something to add to this is how do you respond to this point and where do you go from here? Your, your where do we go from here reminds me of the Hillary Clinton campaign when Mary J. Blige sat on the couch. It was like, Hillary, <laughs> where do we go from here? <laughs> so I'm, I'm really just weak at the reference. And if y'all don't know what I'm talking about, I'm gonna drop the link in the chat. I had to do that. I mean, I couldn't agree more, right? Like HBCUs in a black church are the oldest standing institutions that black people have in this country, right? Like and oftentimes funded each other, right? Supported each other, we're one and the same when we think about the black elite. So I think she's absolutely right. And when I think about it, it makes sense of what's happening at UDC and other institutions. Because what we gotta remember is, yeah, people, we're administrators, right? We have these jobs, but we're people, right? And like who we are and what our values are, oftentimes translates. Like that idiot we had in the White House, he, of course, he, he was a racist right like he was a classist hence the policies and the laws that came from this person because in his personhood that is who he was as a person and I think what what Beverly is doing as she does so well um is really helping us think a little bit more critically about what it is to be radical and grasp something at the root we actually have to have the real conversation the real conversation is about anti-blackness and homophobia and how black people right need to grapple with homophobia and transphobia, and they need to understand that their anti-Blackness is a result of white supremacy. And they can argue against it, and they can try to say it's something different, but all of your ideas around sexuality and gender were taught to you, right? Through colonization on the continent, hence down, like queer people have existed forever. The kingdom of Dahomey wouldn't have existed. Hell, the Orisha wouldn't have existed, right? Like. So I, I just think that we need to get honest and we need to really like undo the white supremacy and the anti-blackness that like has been so embedded. And let's not forget patriarchy because it's also at the root of patriarchy that black women in particular sometimes who are homophobic and transphobic, they rest in that. They rest in the, the roles of gender and the stereotypes around gender. And let's not get on black men who find it impossible to acknowledge black women and, and non-binary folks in particular in their humanity because their masculinity is somehow threatened. So think about it, if that's your president or that's your teacher or whoever, how could there be inclusion on campus? Because mm -hmm. you actually haven't even done the work in your heart. So what we are asking of you, it's impossible. You're not able to do that. You don't even have the capacity. 
and I don't know if we're going to see it. Bev laid it out and she's been doing this. The only women's genders study center right. at, at over 105 HBCUs right, y'all, right, right, in 1981, right. Right. which is disgusting, right? That she's the only one that has been able to do this. Like it's wild, but it's, it's, it's black people too. It's us. I, I would just say the same, just to piggyback off of what Ms. McNally said that um, I agree to, to what, the, the statement said, and I just want to just like back it off by saying like it, there is a lack of support that um that HBCUs have with LGBTQ students and um right like it's only five out of 100 HBCUs that have LGBTQ resource centers like some something wrong with that you know what I'm saying so just by like censoring um LGBTQ folks in higher education. Um, just showing up for us, having these conversations in the classrooms and having these conversations that, you know, with our family and our friends and yeah, just, just centering, just centering us basically. That's the main, that's my main overall thing. That's just showing up. And commit to learning. You know, when we actually come to a cultural competency training, we're not asking you to set it up for your staff. We're asking you to come, mm-hmm. right? Because we all, right, need to learn and to continue to be in the work right you know in the beginning of every training i say this is a journey like you don't come to one training you put your little safe zone sticker up and now it's a safe space that's the first time you ever talked about lgbtq people your space ain't safe you haven't even done the work to be able to create the container yeah you know so i i think it's like people need to get out of their ego which is oftentimes rooted in respectability anti-blackness and patriarchy and say, I don't know this, but I need to know this. Mm-hmm. But that will require what? You know, humility. I, you know what? I, I think um, um, your your colleagues here, Taylor and Shabri, defer and they give a lot of deference to you here, um, Trinice, but- And I wish I, they would stop. <laughs> but I'll say too, that like, I, I appreciate um, uh, this, that the point that Shabri just made here, and I'll, I'll wrap it this way. It's a what's next is uh, to the points that are made, showing up and committing to do the work. It's those are simple things, but they are transformative. Those are the massive things. That's it. Um, but that's the hard part. Yeah. So um, thank y'all for this. This is a fantastic conversation. Uh, I'm sorry that I kept y'all probably like 30 minutes longer than I was supposed to, but I, I do appreciate you staying. Um, before y'all get out of here, tell me, tell us. How we can keep, how we can keep up with you, um, and maybe what you're doing next, if that's if there's something to share. I am off the socials right now, trying <laughs> to get my life together. Um, but I am I do have an Instagram. It's Marsha P. Taught Me. That's my IG handle. Um, and for me, I am in a women and gender studies graduate program, so I'm just studying and learning. Bless you. Keeping on learning. <laughs> Bless you. Cheers to you. That's tough. So uh, support. <laughs> um, for me, uh, my Instagram is underscore Queen Bree K W E E N B R E E. Um, that's my Instagram. But you can also follow tag tag at UDC. Um. Yeah, so, and to talk about just a little bit what I got going on, as I mentioned in the beginning, I have the LGBTQ advisory board and it's aimed at serving for accountability measure. 
that promotes an in integrated sense of identity and social responsibility. Um, I'm going to launch in October LGBTQ History Month, and a part of this launch is the inaugural Essence Hemphill Scholarship that's going to launch, and it's going to be for $5,000. Uh, students will be able to, you know, get that financial support that they need. Um, no matter what you look like, no matter who you are, no matter your identity, um, no matter your grades, any of that, like you want to be able to apply for this scholarship. Uh, so that's a huge thing that I got going on. These podcasts, I appreciate you, Dr. Gamble, for allowing us to be here. Um, and yeah, and we want to have a, a virtue LGBTQ reception for the launch as well. So stay tuned. It, the details will be coming out soon. Yeah, man. Thank you, Shabri. I'm doing everything Shabri just said, you know, this is my job. I work for her, obviously, it's a parent. <laughs> so LGBTQ History Month is coming up. Um, we have so many things planned. Um, you know, you can follow the center at UDC underscore CDIMA. We also have a feminist book club, Dr. Gamble, that you need to join. Um, we're also doing a creative wellness series. Next week, we actually are hosting Intro to Herbology. Uh, where we'll be working with calendula, lavender, a bunch of other herbs, making tinctures and teas because um, we're committed to holistic learning and wellness at the center. So we're trying to figure out how do we meet people where they're at and give people what they, you know, what they want. We're also launching a UDC Pride Day video uh, about like what does pride mean to you? You know, as a person at UDC that attends the institution, as an LGBTQ person, an ally, it doesn't matter. Um, and we're going to invite people to come to the center on October 6th next week um, to be a part of this photo campaign that shares it. But the team at the center, Danielle and Shabri, are building a video, like a short doc, um, that's going to premiere next week as well. Um, I think the thing we're most proud of right now is the Essex Hemphill uh, inaugural scholarship. You know, we, we've just been learning that he is an alumnus of UDC who graduated in 1982. And he honestly like was a, the one of the leading premier authors and poets of his time. Um, unfortunately, he died very young. Um, so we wanna make sure that we're reclaiming like history and legacy, right? That's why we're having this conversation, but we're hoping it will serve as a motivating force to other students that like, hey, you could do what Taylor did. You could do what Shabri did. Hell, you could do what Essex did. You could do what you and I did as HBC alums and you could even do more. And we believe in you and we're gonna help give you this money, right? To be able to support yourself. So yeah, follow us at UDC underscore CDIMA. Uh, my personal handle, mm, feel a little interesting about that. It's IO Zuri. So A-Y-O underscore Z-U-R-I. Um, you know, you'll see all things black, all things queer, lots of good food. I'm also a creative that works on a lot of projects um, with Off-White and other fashion companies. And we're launching a pride capsule um, at the end of next week. So stay tuned for that. It'll be featured in the Face magazine. Um, yeah. We did. Y'all was busy, booked and busy and brilliant. Thank you for your time. Thank y'all so much. I really appreciate this. I'll see y'all next time.